This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. It is 7am on Tuesday the 26th of September. My name is Carnegie and I'm joined in the studio today by Fung and Ifka. Good morning. Good morning. Morning. How are we all? Yeah, really, really good. How's everyone else? <laughs> I'm really well too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Spring is in the air. Spring, spring is in the is air. In the air. Um, and I think sp- spring means also hay fever is in the air. Absolutely. Unfortunately. Yeah. Carnegie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm suffering. Yeah. Um, no, but it's so nice. Did anyone do anything fun on this sunny weekend? I went to the AFLW on Sunday. Oh, yeah? Um, it was a whole family affair. It was really nice. I had three aunties, cousins, second cousins, cousins, kids, little baby. And it was at, uh, we go for Essendon, and so it was back at Windy Hill. And my aunties are telling stories of they remember going when they were kids and what it was like then. And it was, it was only women except the seven-month-old that was with us. But it was really nice to... I guess see it through my auntie's lens as well because they they were saying how much they wanted to play football when they were younger and they weren't allowed to and now you know my auntie's grandchildren are playing football and like in a women's league and she's just so proud and excited for what yeah. it means and it was yeah it was a really nice day. That's so nice. That's really lovely. Yeah. It's yeah. so lovely. I'm going to the Bulldogs game on Friday. Oh fun. So I'm excited for that. It's really nice. Yeah. It's really nice vibe. It's just so different as well. Mm. Like the level of kind of chill and like <laughs> respectful <laughs> mm. um, yeah, crowd. It's really nice. I love the FLW. All right. Um, let's talk about what we have coming up on the show this morning. So yesterday I sat down with Dr. Ellen Cho, who is a lecturer at Monash University. She, alongside Professor Marie Seagrave, co-authored a report called Victorian Local Councils and Gender Equality, examining commitments to diversity and the experiences of women from migrant and refugee backgrounds. So uh, we talked about that report um, and the recommendations that have come from that. So that's up first. Afterwards, we'll be speaking with Chloe DS, who is a refugee rights activist, 3CR presenter and Green Left journalist. Um, Chloe's on the show this morning to talk to us about a public forum that's being held tonight um, on the ALP's policies. Uh, it's called Albanese's Labour, Sacrificing Principles to Power. So we'll be chatting about that. After that, uh, we'll be speaking with Ayala Morales uh, from Wire and Megan O'Connor from Court Network. Next month, uh, Wire is putting on an event 
um, for women and gender diverse people um, on how to navigate the legal system. And so I'll be speaking um, with Ayala and Megan about that and, and why um, these sorts of forums, these sorts of events are really important. Uh, at eight o'clock, we'll be joined in studio by Professor Kim Cornish. Kim is a Sir John Monash Distinguished Professor and Director of the Turner Institute for Brain and Mental Health at Monash University. And she'll be joining us to chat about her uh, book that will be released soon <laughs> called The Post-Pandemic Child. It's a look at sort of the long-lasting impacts that the pandemic had on school-aged children. And then finally, we will hopefully be speaking with some of the women from Refugee Wave who are marching on Parliament to uh, fight for the rights of refugees who've been left in limbo or denied a visa due to a flawed fast-track system. So we're hoping we can get in touch with Refugee Wave later this morning. And we're going to go to a track now. Yes. Uh, first up this morning, actually throughout the whole show today, we're playing music that's been released in the last week or so. So that's nice to get a variety of new music. And this one is called Old Friends by Clearosoul. Soul. I lost a friend. I can't find you anymore. I'm tired of choosing you over myself it's sad and it hurts that it is all over and i hate the fact that it's all over sometimes i think if i was more stronger sunshine my smiles would last longer you had my trust and we had choices but you told my secrets to
That was uh, one of Cleo Soul's new songs, Old Friends. We're going to go to our news headlines now. These are the news headlines for Tuesday the 26th of September. Iran's parliament has passed a new bill that would impose further draconian penalties severely violating women's and girls' rights, as well as increasing prison terms and fines for defying Iran's compulsory veiling laws. On the 20th of September, Iran's parliament approved the bill to support the culture of chastity and hijab. The bill needs to be approved by Iran's Guardian Council to become law. It would expand the powers and capabilities of intelligence and security bodies, including the Revolutionary Guards, the paramilitary force and the police to control and further oppress women and girls. The law equates unveiling to nudity and provides for prison terms of up to 10 years for anyone who defies compulsory veiling laws. The law also makes insulting or ridiculing the hijab a criminal offence punishable by a prison sentence, travel ban and or a fine, and encourages ordinary people, businesses and pro-government vigilantes to enforce compulsory veiling. In an important win for union members, the High Court of Australia last week ruled that Qantas's sacking of 1,700 ground and baggage workers was illegal. The case was brought by the Transport Workers Union in a long legal battle in which two federal court rulings found that Qantas's outsourcing of jobs during the pandemic breached the Fair Work Act and was motivated by a desire to avoid enterprise bargaining and protected industrial action. Since the airline's mass sacking of workers, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission reported that complaints about Qantas and their service soared by 68% in 2022. Over 800 ecosystem restoration experts from across the globe are gathering in Darwin for the 10th Society on Ecological Restoration conference from today to Saturday the 30th of September. This is the largest conference of its kind ever held in the Southern Hemisphere. In the last 200 years, Australia has lost 34 mammals to extinction, more than the rest of the world combined, and since the National Environmental Law was introduced in 1999, the list of threatened species and ecological communities has grown by more than a third. This type of loss occurs all over the world and has led to an international biodiversity crisis. The federal government signed on to the international Kunmeg Montreal Global Biodiversity Framework earlier this year, where it committed Australia to restore 30% of our degraded ecosystems on land and sea by 2030. A large Australian contingent will attend the conference, led by members of the Restoration Decade Alliance, which incorporates 21 peak environmental organisations who are active in restoring ecosystems. The Stop Black Deaths in Custody National Day of Action is coming up on the 7th of October. The Freedom Socialist Party and Radical Women will be marching on with the Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne at a rally called by Black Sovereign Movement. The rally will also honour the memory of the many First Nations people who have tragically died in police and prison custody and demand urgent reform of Victoria's harsh bail laws, which run directly counter to the Royal Commission recommendations. You can join the contingent at 12.45pm near Sunken Library statue close to the corner of Swanston and Latrobe Streets on the 7th of October. Radical Women are also hosting a discussion called 
Homes for People Not Profit, How to Fix the Housing Crisis on Sunday the 24th of September 2023, which has passed, I've just realised. Okay. Um, and for the final news for this morning, my favourite thing is now open, which is voting for the bird of the year. So I really encourage everyone to just Google bird of the year 2023 and vote for your favourite bird. I vote for mine every year and it never wins. So I'm hoping that this year the tawny frogmouth comes out on top. All right, we'll be back with our first interview right after this message. LGBTIQA plus people, that's come from a large history of people standing up and acting up for our rights and our communities. Talking queer Pacifica, talking about us. You know, this very like violent act of like hatred and bigotry towards trans people, where they demonise the image of trans people, especially trans women. For working class queers, for queers of colour, for those who are poor and homeless, the struggle is continuing. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Dr Ellen Cho is a lecturer at Monash University and co-author of the report Victorian Local Councils and Gender Equality, Examining Commitments to Diversity and the Experiences of Women from Migrant and Refugee Backgrounds. Uh, this was authored alongside Professor Marie Seagrave. Yesterday, I sat down with Ellen to talk about their research into the experiences of refugee and migrant women in local government. Thank you so much for joining us on Tuesday Breakfast, Ellen. It's lovely to speak with you. Thanks for having me. So I was wondering if you could start by telling our listeners about the significance of conducting this research into local councils and how these work settings are treating women from refugee and migrant backgrounds. Sure. So um, this particular research was funded by the Commission for Gender Equality in the Public Sector. So we specifically looked at Victorian local councils and what their council employees experiences are like um, in terms of gender equality. Um, so we really looked at migrants and refugee women because um, Victorian local councils are the key employer for the community. Um, and also they are the first layer of the Australian governance system. Um, yeah, so that's why we focused on local councils. And can you talk about how you got different local councils to get involved with this research? Yeah, um, so we pretty much sent an invitation to six participating councils based on population data. So we focused on three highly diverse population areas and then also three less diverse um, population areas. And luckily we um, had them all joined our project, which was really um, great. So yeah, that's how we got to choose those six councils. And in terms of the findings, did you see any similarities between these local councils? I know that you said just now that there were councils with uh, highly diverse um, populations and also less diverse. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about um, what you found from your research. Sure. I think that's a really good question because when we first initiated this project when we first started this project we really wanted to compare and contrast the differences between those two groups but um as we um 
start meeting with all the executive um, management teams and also um, employees in six local councils, we thought that um, there are more similarity rather than differences. And especially migrant women, um, migrant and refugee women had very similar experiences across councils. So we didn't really compare and contrast their experiences. And in terms of the types of things that refugee and migrant women were experiencing in these workplaces, can you talk about some of the key issues that were raised from these participants? Yeah, um, so we really had in-depth discussions, which was really great. And as a migrant myself, I could really relate to those findings. I think one of the main findings would be that migrant women faced various for promotion. So when they were recruited, um, they really didn't see as much as barriers um, as they expected. But when they wanted to go up and be the leader um, in the in their workplace, they started seeing um, those linguistic cultural barriers. Um, so yeah, I think that was the main finding really. And did many of these women um, have positive experiences in terms of were there any systems in place within some of these councils to support women um, trying to build their career and, and perhaps get promotions? Yeah, um, I think uh, in terms of recruitment, um, they said that they felt really supported and they were not being asked about, you know, you know what their cultural backgrounds are um, and things like that. But when it comes to promotion, what women shared with me was that there is little support for migrant and refugee women. And also they start singing their foreignness really um, um, because their leadership style might be a little bit different to other women. And also their you know, linguistic skills um, and their ability ability to actually be a full-time staff because all the manager positions require them to be full-time staff. But sometimes these women didn't really have family support to care their children. So, yeah, we just had really wonderful discussions together. And in terms of language, I know that's something that was mentioned in the report. What are these women's experiences when it comes to being able to speak um, more than one language, is that seen as an asset or has that hindered them in some ways? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, it was a bit of both. So in community-facing roles like library or sports centre, um, languages were valued. Um, but when it comes to, again, I keep talking about promotion, but when it comes to promotion and really managing the team or looking after the team as a leader, um, their additional language skills were not valued as much as it used to be in their community facing roles and those who are working in internal roles like for example HR they said that the language was not really um, used so their language skills were not really not really I can't really say that they were not valued but they were not used or utilized within the team. Um, I also wanted to touch on refugee and women's experience of harassment within these work settings. Uh, can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, um, so um, most of the participants for these studies were uh, migrant women. 
And I've only met with a couple of refugee, like a couple of women from refugee background, but they um, didn't have experience of like a sexual harassment within their organization. But what one thing that they mentioned about is, you know, when we try to really recruit diverse, back, like a people from diverse background, one reason that refugee like people from refugee background couldn't come forward is because of their trauma with you know trauma dealing with the government whether it's their home country or australian government when they apply for refugee visas here so i thought that was really interesting and you know we had this discussion with the senior leadership team in local councils they were like you know we really want to diversify our workforce but we're not sure how to actually reach out to migrant and refugee community and when I mentioned about this you know what these women have shared with me they were like that really makes sense oh we really have to do more work on this yeah which was really good Hmm. yeah so it sounds like that's probably a gap that needs to be addressed within these settings is not just diversifying, but also really supporting women from refugee backgrounds to be able to apply for these roles. Um, because it's yeah. thing to say, we welcome everyone, but if there are no proactive steps in actually helping or helping to facilitate this uh, process, then it makes it extremely difficult and very, very daunting yeah. And when, you know, when you go to look at councils, you like, I think the first impression is really important. If you don't see any women of color or non-binary people, you immediately feel like this is not a place for someone like me. Um, so I think it's really important to have that kind of diverse representation within local councils as well. Yeah, definitely. And one thing I found quite interesting from reading the report is that uh, some of the participants mentioned that there was good inclusive language being used, you know, the mention of the word intersectional or intersectionality, but there was a lack of meaningful action to to back that up. So, um, yeah, I was wondering if you could talk about that a bit more. Yeah, um, that was a really interesting point um, because... So I think in, I think from 2021, um, so as you know, we have the new Gender Equality Act and um, each public sector, so like, for example, local councils um, have to put forward their gender equality action plan and in doing so, they have to actually take, apply um, intersectional approach to those plans. And so when we analyzed gender equality action plans from you know, each councils, um, they used that they would take intersectional approach. But when we uh, when we asked the participants what you know, what do you think about you know your local council's inter- intersectional approach, they were like, there is none. Some of them were like, there's none. Some of them were like, oh, I think they just mean family violence or First Nations people or LGBTQI community. So they really, um, there was very um, diverse ideas and diverse impression about uh, what intersectionality means. So that was really interesting. So, so one of the suggestions, one of the recommendations that we made for the commission is to be really clear about what we mean by intersectionality. You know, obviously, we are just starting this new action plan. Um, it's, you know, the work is 
you know, in the progress, we, um, so I think for the next gender equality action plan, we really think about what intersectionality actually means and what it looks like within their organizations. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Being able for mm. um, that to be clearly communicated to um, people who work in local government, but also for people within the community as well, just so that they Absolutely. understand what's being done at that level. Aside from that, were there any other key recommendations made from this report? Um, something that we found out during the focus group. So we've met with 81 um, participants from six in uh, six uh, participating local councils and um, they talked about you know having the um, diversity working group but when we asked the migrants and refugee women whether they are part of the group um, none of them were part of the group um, so we really I think something that local council really need to uh, put efforts on to is to really include them be more inclusive and have a better representation in diversity groups and committees. That was Dr. Ellen Cho speaking to me about the report that she wrote with Professor Marie Seagrave called Victorian Local Councils and Gender Equality, Examining Commitments to Diversity and the Experience of Women from Migrant and Refugee Backgrounds. To read the full report, you can go to bit.ly forward slash Victorian Local Councils or make sure you check our show notes after today's show. Local Melbourne multi-instrumentalist Hannah Cameron released her third album last week called Holding Pattern. This track is taken from that album and it's called The Wrong Way.
That song was The Wrong Way by Hannah Cameron. We are now joined by Chloe DS, who is a refugee rights activist, fellow 3CR presenter and Green Left journalist. And Chloe joins us this morning to talk about a public forum being held tonight on ALP's policies called Albanese's Labour, Sacrificing Principles for Power. This event is being hosted by Green Left and Socialist Alliance. Welcome to Tuesday Breakfast, Chloe. Thank you. Good morning, Fong, and Tuesday Breakfast. <laughs> um, I'm speaking from the land of the been wrong and the Wadawurrung people of the Kula Nation. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you for joining us early this morning. Um, I was wondering if you could start, Chloe, by talking us through some of these policies um, of the AOPs that ha- actually have been carried on from the coalition government. Yeah, sure. Thanks. So it's it's now been well over a year since the Albanese government came into power. And um, ever since they got elected, the ALP has backed tax cuts for the rich, uh, continue to subsidise the fossil fuel industry, and they're doing nothing to alleviate the impact of inflation on workers' wages. So it was Labor's decision to continue the coalition's stage three tax cuts, and that's deprived the federal budget, budget of a staggering $313 billion over 10 years to benefit high-income earners. So they are continuing in the coalition footsteps when it comes to this, um, also when it comes to this war drive against China, they're deciding to spend $368 billion for nuclear submarines. Uh, They continue, they're not, you know, continuing to, well, they're not taking any real action on climate change. Um, They're spending $10 billion in annual tax breaks and subsidies to fossil fuel um, companies. And yeah, just Labor is just continuing their decades-old tradition of being more liberal than the Liberals and turning their back on some of the most vulnerable people in society. So there's um, the, the, the government also decided to not raise the job seeker rate, leaving millions of people here struggling to survive below the poverty line. And they did this... They ignored the advice of their own poverty experts calling who actually called for an increase to seriously... Um, uh, to, to actually raise raise the rate. So the ALP is showing us that, you know, they fail to listen to their own... Um, they fail to listen to the advice of their own committees when they are currently campaigning for the, the voice of parliament, um, which would involve a nas- national advisory committee set up um, for another nas- uh, First Nations advisory body. And also, lastly, I mean, there are lots of other policies we could talk about, but I guess another one is refugees, when it comes to refugees and policies like mandatory detention, there is a history of bipartisan cruelty from both major parties. And the Albanese government, um, they uh, they voted against the Migration Amendment Evacuation to Safety Bill um, to bring the remaining refugees to Australia. Uh, and the temporary protection visas, which were initially introduced by the Howard government, they were abolished by the Rudd government in 2008 and then reintroduced by the Abbott government in 2013. The Labor government promised to end this cruel practice of imposing temporary protection visas onto people who didn't, who were, um, were found to meet the definition of a refugee. And it could have done this with the stroke of a pen immediately after it was elected, but it didn't. And just before Christmas, they did announce it was a... Um, welcome announcement that 19,000 refugees 
on these TPVs would be able to apply for permanency, but there's been no time frame outlined and also 10,000 refugees, many of whom were subjected to Scott Morrison's fast-track process, will not be eligible to apply. So on Albanese's election night, he promised that no-one would be left behind by Labour. And, yeah, Labour is continuing many of the coalition's policies, including policies Labour actually objected to when it was in, in opposition. Yeah, I was going to actually say, leading up to the last federal election, it seemed like Labour was trying really hard to set themselves apart from the coalition and, you know, present themselves as a progressive party who, like you said, wouldn't be leaving people behind. But it really seems like that um, they haven't really done much at all to to prove that difference between the two parties. Yeah, that's right. I mean, well, people... Um, are suffering in the same way under this government. The ALP are just doing exactly what the ALP always do when they are in power, which is just enough to maintain their progressive credentials. Like you said, they, um, I guess they, they maintain, they've maintained many of the coalition policies, but they know how to implement them and oppress us more politely <laughs> than the, the coalition. Um, and, yeah, I guess... Um, yeah, maybe some people are surprised and, and thought things would change dramatically under the ALP. And, and while we are all better off under Labor government than Liberal, um, the, the relationship um, the Labor Party has to social movements has always been contentious. Yeah. And so can you tell us a bit more about, you know, the difference between people's responses to the coalition parties and the and the ALP regarding some of these policies that they've rolled out. Um, yeah, have you noticed people reacting differently or is it the same sort of response? Uh, well, I guess like what I was saying before, I think, yeah, maybe maybe there are some people who, who thought um, things would get a bit better, like the housing crisis mm. has gotten so much worse. Um, and like I was saying, the, the relationship the Labor has to social movements um, has always been tricky because, you know, it actively works to prevent and co-op sections of the movement in this bid to sort of channel independent campaigns that have, like, have quite radical dynamics. And then they what they do is they throw it back into the parliamentary arena. So, you know, I, I know, like, a lot of... Um, just speaking from experience, a lot of the refugee movement, a lot of refugees were campaigning and hoping for an ALP government. Um, and they honestly thought that they would, you know, be thriving under an ALP government. They thought that their TPVs would get, they would get permanent residency, that, um, you know, a lot would improve for them. But it, this actually hasn't been the case. Um, and, you know, this sort of... Um, line that like, Albanese has this kind of line of argument that Labor could not possibly win possible a uh, popular support without having these conservative policies. Mm. This is the rationale for, for workers having to put up with things like stage uh, three tax cuts and the, the AUKUS nuclear submarines. Um, nobody wants um, those nuclear submarines. So I think... Um, yeah, the, the the ALP has shown has shown weakness in in kind of continuing in continuing the coalition policies, and I think yeah, the letdown um, 
a lot of people after voting voting them in. Um, yeah, and I think a lot of maybe a lot of people feel very let down. Yeah, it's really interesting what you've just said about Albanese using that line because um, it makes it seem like you know we don't know doesn't actually explicitly say like who's supporting these policies, how many people, but if you actually in fact talk to just everyday people, you really do find out that not many people are very supportive of AUKUS um, and are, you know, very critical of um, of the lack of, you know, rights that workers have, that refugees have. So, yeah, it's interesting for, for the ALP to continue using this line um, because, yeah, like you said, it, it helps them to validate um, or continue to roll out these really um, conservative policies. Um, finally, Chloe, I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about tonight's event. I understand that you'll be speaking at this public forum. Um, who else will join you tonight? Yeah, so uh, I'll be speaking. Also, Sue Ball, who is a union activist and member of Socialist Alliance, will be you know, talking a little bit about the history of the ALP, um, you know, have they always, have ALP governments always been like this? We can just learn a little bit bit more about that. And also Zane Alcorn, who's a CFMEU member, Earth Worker Construction Co-op member, uh, Socialist Alliance member, and also um, organising the People's Blockade in Newcastle in November. So, yeah, that, it'll be a really great forum to get to. It's tonight at six from 6.30. Uh, we're serving dinner at 6. And it's going to be held at the Resistance Centre at Level 5, 407 Swanson Street. And, um, yeah, you can find out more on the Green Left calendar if yeah. you go to www.greenleft.org.au slash events. Yeah, and we'll make sure to put that link in our show notes as well. Chloe, before you leave today, I just wanted to ask you, what are some changes that you would like to see from the ALP government? I know there are probably many, but if you could, um, yeah, choose one or two to speak about. Oh, gosh, that's that's really difficult because I, I don't think that the ALP can change, mm. especially from within. Um, that's not to, you know, make people feel feel bad, but... You know, some of the demands of the ALP is is definitely to stop its uh, war drive against China and take serious climate action. So stop stop building new coal and, and gas projects and fossil fuel subsidies. Um, you know, listen to, to First Nations people um, and the the fast um, the cruel fast track system and release. Um, you know, bring all refugees stuck in offshore prisons and. Um, in, from Indonesia, bring them here, dismantle the entire detention regime. And we need to fix the housing crisis. I mean, I'm sure everyone is really concerned and is impacted in, in some way. There needs to be a massive expansion of public housing. Um, and I, this is, you know, I could go on, make public transport free, scrap <laughs> the hex debt, but it's just a start. These are not really radical measures that we're calling for because Labor is loyal to big business. Um, these things won't be handed to us on a silver platter. We do need to fight for them. Yeah, definitely. That's a great um, point to end on. Well, thank you so much for joining us this morning uh, to speak about the uh, public forum that's happening tonight, Chloe. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Bye. Have a good morning. Bye. 
We've been chatting to Chloe Diaz, who is a refugee rights activist, 3CR presenter and Green Left journalist about tonight's public forum on the ALP. Just a reminder, it's taking place from 6.30 to 8.30pm at the Resistance Centre, which is located on Level 5, 407 Swanston Street in the CBD. You can find all the details by going to www.greenleft.org.au forward slash events. Serrated tussock is a noxious weed that has impacted our farmlands and environment across Victoria. Similar in appearance to many native tussock grasses, serrated tussock may go unnoticed in both pastures and native grasslands for many years. Victorian Serrated Tussock Working Party has assisted hundreds of landholders to control this noxious weed and they can assist you by offering a wide range of information and management options for controlling this weed of national significance. Visit serratedtussock.com for more information. A 3CR supporter. We're going to play you another song now. As I said at the start of the show, all tracks we're playing this morning have been released in the last week or so. This is the latest from uh, London-based artist Ego Ego Ella May, and it is called Undone.
That track there was Undone by Ego Ella May. On the 12th of October, WIRE will be putting on an event called From Rights to Support, a practical approach to navigating the legal system. There will be guest speakers from Police Accountability Project, Flat Out, Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, Law and Advocacy Centre for Women and Court Network. Here to tell us more about the event is Ayala Morales, who is Community Engagement Lead at WIRE and Megan O'Connor, Program Manager at Court Network. Welcome to 3CR, Ayala and Megan. Thank you so Hello. Much. Ayala, can you start by telling us why um, WIRE has put together this event? Definitely. Um, so we kind of came about from rights to support um, following a lot of things coming in, the supports that we do at WIRE. So at WIRE, we're a generalist service that supports women, non-binary, gender-diverse people Victoria-wide about any issue. And we started hearing a lot of people who... Um, are facing various barriers and that might be for uh, a myriad of reasons, whether it's finances, income, um, making it difficult to access knowledge um, and how that impacts their ability to understand their rights and understand what lawyers can do, understand what police do. Um, And from that, there was a growing theme of people being misidentified as people who cause harm. Um, And from that, we thought, well, you know, why is a service that is about um, empowering people with knowledge? And so part of that is doing our programs. And that's how we came um, with the idea of rights to support and connecting all the different um, expertise from other organisations to talk about how people can navigate this and increase awareness with the legal system and what they do. Yeah, because I think, you know, the the legal system can be so, is so incredibly um, complex and complicated and can be really hard for people to navigate, um, even at the best of times. Uh, So it's great that you know, you're offering women and gender diverse people this support um, and, yeah, offering them like a really useful, um, tangible session where they can uh, access this really crucial information. Um, Megan, Court Network will be part of this event. Can you tell us more about Court Network and the the support that you offer? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Court Network, we're a not-for-profit org And so we provide a free community service which is delivered entirely by volunteers. Um, So it's characterised by sort of three main elements being support, information and referral. So the support aspect looks like emotional support in court um, for the court user sort of on the day. Um, So this is like, you know, giving them a sympathetic ear and just being an encouraging person there sort of to stand beside them um, and empower them with that experience. Uh, and then from there, information is what's sort of most commonly about the justice system itself. As you mentioned, it's really complex. So just sort of answering practical questions about what the next steps might be um, and, yeah, supporting them to navigate the system, as you say, which in turn does sort of provide them with a greater sense of confidence and, again, like empowers them to speak up for themselves and get the best outcome possible. Um, and then referral, which is working closely with organisations such as WIRE um, and the other awesome orgs that will be present at the seminar and just, yeah, having a good understanding of what the supports are that are out there and pointing people in the right direction to get the help that they need. 
Yeah, and and so you and Ayala also touched on this briefly just now, but I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about why people might need to access your service. Um, What are some of the challenges that people can face within this legal system? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I guess there are a variety of reasons. So it's really easy for people to feel lost in the system, as you sort of mentioned. Um, It's incredibly daunting. Um, There's, you know... As you say, confusing, the steps aren't always clear, there's lots of language and terms which are um, confusing. Um, And the other thing is that typically, I guess, the individuals and organisations which operate within the system are really time poor, so um, people just aren't kind of getting the attention and the answers that they need a lot of the time, which I guess this is something that places Court Network at quite an advantage because our volunteers are able to give people the time that they need to, like, I guess, hear out their stories and in doing so, sort of draw out what the the main concerns are. Um, yeah, and I guess just, yeah, isolate the issues for the individual. Yeah, definitely. And can you share a bit about what you, um, what Court Network will be speaking about at this upcoming event? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess I'll just look to sort of provide um, practical information. So you think like sort of tips, tricks, insights, um, hopefully to help people feel a little bit better prepared. Um, yeah, just what to expect when you're attending court. Uh, and I'll look to give um, some suggestions of where to find more info and, yeah, just helpful resources which are out there for, for people to access as well. Yeah, great. I think that's one of the... Um major issues is that you know people were probably aware that there are all these resources and Mm. and um support out there but they don't know how to go about finding them or what the first step is because i imagine it can be quite overwhelming um yeah trying to select which one or or perhaps go about it in the right way follow you know the necessary steps so um yeah that sounds really helpful yeah Um, absolutely Ayala, I was wondering if you could speak more about the different support services that are coming to um, speak at this event. For example, um, Flat Out, um, people from Police Accountability Project, people from VALS. Um, Why is it so important to have all these different support networks coming together um, and speaking about the legal system? I think so... It's really about understanding that different organisations have their expertise and we are able to um, be funded to dedicate our time to gather knowledge and awareness about what our focus is. And so what's um, really valuable about joining together is that we can bring those resources together in one place where people can access it, like Megan was saying, Um, often where to begin can be um, one of the hardest things to navigate uh, because it's such a broad system and people, uh, what people's expertise are so specific. And if you don't know the system, um, it's hard to know what those skills are um, and understand why um, people specialise in different fields. So, for example, uh, in a Melbourne community legal, um, they have the police accountability um, project. Um, so they are talking about police accountability, ways to speak to the police um, and um, sharing their expertise of um, what they've encountered during that project. Uh, flat out, they'll be talking about um, how workers Um, can avoid colluding with the system. So what are ways we can report um, and um, 
protect clients so that they don't experience further harm from the system. And then as a person seeking support, how does that look like um, when you're um, having a social worker or a lawyer or someone who's part of the system supporting you and not colluding with the system? So that way uh, it builds a bit more transparency of how you can advocate for yourself when you are. Um, getting support and what you can request from the person supporting you. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and then there's there's three more organisations. So we have the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, or VALS, and they'll be talking about ways they support people um, and how to navigate the criminal system. Um, So that can be from policing to court to prison. And then the Law and Advocacy Centre for Women... um, They uh, support women um, for various um, reasons. It could be criminal defences, bail, family violence interventions, child child protection and VOCA and um, infringement and fines. So they'll be talking about um, how they support the people who come uh, to seek their service. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much for that. Um, I I wanted to touch on just a couple of things that you mentioned Mm. just now. Firstly you know, um, how to how to speak to some of the people who work within this legal system, like speaking to people at court or speaking to police. It seems like on the surface, you know, um, not a big deal, but in actual fact, I imagine it would be quite, um, uh, it can be quite traumatic. Um, and a lot of the time, like especially for women and and um, LGBTIQ plus people, can be a very unsafe experience. So um, I imagine that that would be something that would be incredibly useful for people. Exactly. Yeah, and it's something that it depends on culture, it depends on ethnicity and language, um, and then being part of LGBTQIA plus community. There's like certain identities that interact with the system differently um, that means that what power you hold in the system can vary Um, and that is played out when you're talking to the police or you're talking to a lawyer Um, and so it's important uh, knowing having some tips on how to engage with lawyers what do lawyers actually focus on what do the police focus on what does a judge focus on What's the language that they um, speak? Uh, what's the language that can help protect you? What's the information that you can help say or not say to protect yourself um, and feel safe as well? So when we're talking about safety, we're talking not just about physical safety, but we recognise safety being psychological, religious and emotional safety as well. Um, so it's about being able to tell your truth Um, and how to share your narrative as well and what are the ways that you can kind of contextualise your story and the language you can use when talking to people that are part of the legal system Um, so you can have your story and truth heard. Um, And that includes, you know, ways of um, collecting evidence, um, how to store that evidence. So there's a a huge... um, layers of things that are involved when you're thinking about the legal system and protecting yourself and navigating the legal system and how to speak to, with them. Yeah, it's it's 
um, so much to to have to learn and to hold onto, um, whilst also you know going through the motions of um, yeah being being in those physical spaces, um, having to tell your story perhaps you know n- multiple times, um, mm. and yeah. And um, having to, I guess, interact with systems that um, historically um, and to this day can be very unsafe for a lot of people. Um, before we get to the um, the when and where of the event, Megan, mm-hmm. I was wondering if, if people want to find out more about Court Network, uh, where can they go? Yeah, absolutely. You can um, just navigate to our website so that's courtnetwork.com.au. Um, I should mention we do also um, provide a like a pre-court service, which is via the telephone. So um, the number for that is 1-800-571-239. And I guess that just sort of speaks to everything that you're um, discussing around sort of understanding, you know, what to expect and how to engage with the difference of actors within the system. That's a great tool that's there for people to kind of talk that through with someone. And as I say, you know, we can discuss these sorts of things at length. So we do often find that court users really benefit from that um, and are sort of better equipped going into it. So, yeah, that would be my suggestion. Thank you so much, Megan. And finally, Ayala, can you tell us um, when and where is this um, event happening? Okay, so it is on the 12th of October, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. at Kathleen Syme Library and Community Centre. So that's in Carlton. And if you are interested, you can uh, join for personal reasons. You can join for professional or just interest as well. So if that sounds like something you want to find out more about and find out what the organisations are doing, you can um, book um, going on to our website. And that's wire.org.au forward slash events. And from there, you go to our calendar. And on the 12th of October, you'll see... Um, from rights to support. Amazing. Well, I want to thank you both uh, for joining us on the show this morning. We'll make sure to include all of the event details and uh, links on our show notes. But for now, thank you, Ayala and Megan, for joining us on Tuesday Breakfast this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. So that was Ayala Morales from WIRE and Megan O'Connor from Court Network speaking to us about an upcoming event where women, non-binary and gender diverse people can get more information and support when it comes to navigating the legal system. Again, for more information, you can follow WIRE uh, on Instagram at, at WIRE Victoria or you can go to um, www.wire.org.au. Vibe Union is bringing exciting, ongoing showcases of local talent across Melbourne. This creative collective provides a supportive platform to upcoming artists, hosting poetry open mic nights, intimate singer-songwriter evenings, and hip-hop showcases. Head along to one of their events for a welcoming night of creativity, or see how you can get involved at vibeunion.com.au. Vibe Union is a 3CR supporter. I sang the words I will not say so. Hey, this is Greta Ray and you are listening to 3CR 855am Radical Radio on digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. 
there's kind of a lot of a lot of things that are coming up to the fore at the moment as well, particularly in terms of the way that we imagine, for example, essential work and also sort of essential community life or essential caregiving um, and how those how those function. If we think about sort of the way that queer family often takes very, very sort of different forms and very you know important and meaningful forms that often don't match the picture of normative, heteronormative family life, but how so many of the of the affordances or the restrictions or the kind of the, the government governmental sort of imagining of the way that we should live and what we need to live and what we need to survive really is shaped around heteronormativity. You know, it's around the family life in the suburb, as opposed to many, you know, single individuals who have shared queer family both sexual and community connections that sustain them and that kind of give them give them life and give them give them sort of energy and comfort and safety and security and support you're listening to 3cr community radio 855 am on digital and online 3cr radical radio the post-pandemic child, Professor Kim Cornish, Director of the Turner Institute for Brain and Mental Health at Monash University, sets out to establish what society, public policy and governments must fulfil to help support the post-pandemic generation. Kim joins us in the studio this morning to chat about the book. Welcome to 3CR, Kim. Thank you for having me. Can you start by telling us a bit about the post-pandemic child and what led you to writing the book? Yeah, so... In 2020 and 2021, over 700,000 children started school for the first time. And three years later, they've really lost two years, 25% of their schooling during the pandemic. And so I wanted to to look at what that child is like now. They're eight and nine now. Um, How are they defined by the pandemic? We, We know that the pandemic did not did not impact all children. Some children survived quite quite well and are okay. But for so many children, you know, they are, they're anxious, they're fearful, they are on their screens more than ever before, probably because it's a safe place for them. And some are still struggling to make friends and some are still struggling to go to school. So I wanted to look at why that was happening, you know, why some children were more vulnerable than others. We're all in this together was the catch cry at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, But as you point out in The Post-Pandemic Child, it became apparent really quickly that this wasn't always the case, as you just touched on there as well. Can you talk uh, us through some of the key areas that impacted some children more than others? Yes. um, When I did my research and we're looking at children who have been really impacted, these are children that were vulnerable before the pandemic. Mm. So these are children who have maybe come from distressed families, so families that are in poverty or families with family violence, where school was the safest place they could be. Mm. Some families um, have had really poor job outcomes, and so children have not had opportunities to even go near the internet, let alone, and that was one of the assumptions the government made, that everybody had access to the internet when clearly not everybody does. Um, Children in really remote areas really struggle too. Children with developmental delays, like children with autism, children with ADHD and intellectual delays, 
all needed the stability, the routine, and it was disrupted overnight. And in Victoria, it was continuously disrupted over a two-year period. And, and so parents then had to, had to work and struggle to figure out how children with these disabilities and children from many different walks of life were coping, and many haven't. Mm. And which is why you see a massive rise in anxiety. School refusal is the highest it's ever been. And, and children are playing in isolation in, in the, in the um, classroom. One of my um, colleagues took his granddaughter to school just a couple of months ago. So we're now talking 23. She went into school. She's in grade one, straight to a laptop. All of the children were on their laptops. None of them were playing. And... You know, you remember when the school, when all of the um, playgrounds had red and black tape, yellow mm. tape on them. So something that was safe for children to play, to grow, to learn, to make friends was suddenly out of bounds. And children to this day are really struggling. And so when you talk about communities that struggled, those children that were in all of the high rise flats where there was no green space during the pandemic, had nothing. They just had concrete to play mm. on, and so the whole concept of playing in the playground, playing with with your with your peers in school, is still not there for many children. Mm. I think it, it's interesting, just as you were saying, how it's children that potentially had like struggles before the pandemic and they were just exacerbated I think the pandemic did that for a lot of things. It kind of showed the cracks that were already there, but really shone a light on. Uh, our society in that way. In the book, you also say that at the core of the pandemic legacy is the pervasive rise in mental health problems. What steps do you think can be taken to support this generation going forward? And do you think we're currently doing enough? I, I believe that when the pandemic happened, there was an incredible government boost of funding for mental health for schools. The danger now is what happens when that dries out. What happens if there's a new government and this is not their priority? So you can have two scenarios. You can have children now that have the resources they need. So, for example, in schools, the relationship between students and teachers was, was really frayed during the pandemic. But having teachers, having parents, having children come together to, to understand mental health, to talk about mental health, to have research resources that are preventative can detect early mental health problems will mean the world for families everywhere to be able to to recognize early symptoms and then and then act on those symptoms but going forward governments need to continue this amount of funding it's an onerous amount of funding but if we don't have it then and it stops we've then got children in 28 that are now teenagers who were the ones coming through the pandemic in school to start with and they won't have the mental health services because there won't be enough the wait lists already for to see child psychologists and psychiatrists are really high imagine when the funding dries up and those wait lists become such that only those who are the most affluent of parents can afford for their children to go. Mm -hmm. So we need to keep investing. We need to invest in technology that sees every school, no matter where your child lives, every, every school have access to preventative mental health programs like Triple P, the Positive Parenting Program, and families and schools work together and they work together all the way through high school. It doesn't just stop at primary, but it's followed all the way through. Then we will have a general 
generation of children who are defined positively by the pandemic, not a generation lost. Mm. And I think when you start to think of other other things that are impacting, I mean, society, but also children would feel them too. If you start to think about climate change and the cost of living crisis and how you know, it's been flagged that we could have another potential really bad bushfire season this summer and we know that they, they impact everyone but children that aren't really sure what to do or how that could affect them, like these things are just going to continue to happen and so I think investing in mental health services for such from such a young age and continuing through is only going to become more important. Um, while reading your book, I was thinking about how public discourse has really shifted away from the pandemic uh, and and its effects and I think that's the tendency for wishful thinking we kind of want to think it's over and it's not impacting us anymore but there's also other things popping up like the cost of living crisis as I mentioned before and that is really impacting people so do you think that this public moving on and not really addressing it in in this public sense is going to help kids do you think it's going to hinder them yeah I'm just curious for your thoughts on that yeah, I think at the forefront of everything is our children. Right? And our children, millions of children across Australia and their families and their teachers were, were dramatically impaired and impacted in the pandemic. You can't stop now. That lens has given us an incredible opportunity to intervene and to provide services that are ongoing irrespective of of what is happening, other events that are happening around us. Our hope is that children become resilient and they can deal with these differing events that life will throw at them as they as they progress through into into teenagers. But it now there's never been a, a time where that spotlight is needed on our children. They need to keep to be the priority we need to keep investing in mental health we keep we need to invest in technology for, for decades to, to allow our children to, to thrive mm, totally I completely agree um Kim that's all we have time for this morning unfortunately but can you please tell our listeners uh where they can find your book it's released next week yeah it's released next week and you can find it on Amazon just google <laughs> just google the post-pandemic child because amazingly there is only one title out there so wow. please please have a look at it i hope people feel inspired to action yeah thank you so much thank for joining you. us this morning thanks we've been joined in the studio by professor professor kim cornish talking about her book the post-pandemic child uh, it's released next week. As Kim said, you can Google it. It's out via Monash University Publishing. Thanks again for chatting with us. We know you love listening to 3CR, but we also know that many of you haven't downloaded the Community Radio Plus app yet. The app lets you tune in anywhere and share the station with your friends. So show the love and share the love and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. 
It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. Where does the profit your power company makes end up? If you join CoPower, you get to decide where 100% of our revenue goes. So while we work to dismantle the whole broken energy market, our members are building the world they want to live in by supporting strike funds, renewables projects, anti-poverty initiatives, and much more. So change your power company and then start changing everything else. That's what CoPower is all about. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter. Refugees from diverse backgrounds are marching to Parliament House in Canberra today. Led by women, this march is uniting refugees to raise their voices and advocate for justice, protection, study and work rights for all. Joining us live from the march this morning is Rati from Refugee Women Action for Visa Equality. Welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Rati. Hello. Hi, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thank you for calling us. So can we start by talking about what led to this march? What brought all these different refugee women from such diverse backgrounds together? Because we are asking for freedom for all of us. Because we are, um, ROS visa has given the hope for 19,000 refugees, but they are left behind. Uh, around 10,000 refugee women and children left behind. So that's why we thought... We have to do something. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, that's so incredibly unfair and it um, makes it really clear that the system as it stands is not working. How does the government's lack of transparency and lack of fairness impact refugees, particularly women and children? Hi, Rati, are you there? Sorry, I couldn't hear that. Could you Yeah, sure. So I was just uh, hoping you could tell us about how the government's uh, lack of transparency impacts women and children refugees. Um, can I get, um, this is Lavinia. I would like to answer for this question. Sure. Um, so um, the government's been treating refugees uh, for more than um, in a decade. Um, they have not given any answers for a number of uh, refugees, and most of the refugees are still in camps and in community detention. And some of them are, you know, their cases have not been analyzed for a number of years. And these refugees uh, came here with, you know, um, kids. They are one year or you know two two years old now. These kids are grown up, and they are they have to go to universities and colleges. And these people do not know uh, should they, you know, join the university or what they need to do, what's their future or anything. So there are women and, you know, so the children are walking here. Uh, the one of the uh, women walking here is a 19-year-old girl. She couldn't go to university. And uh, this government has not given them any, any sort of uh, solution. And these people do not know what the future is. So she has to discontinue her university studies uh, to... to uh, you know, uh, because she couldn't afford international student fees. So this lack of transparency has been really uh, hurting a lot of people. They don't know where, where to go. They are in limbo. They're not able to choose. 
their future. That's incredibly unfair, and it's you know you it's not okay to keep people in limbo like that, um, where you you can't you know even choose what you're going to study or pay for your study because you don't know what the future holds. Um, as I understand it, the Labour Party made some promises, um, you know, and they promised some changes. Can you tell us about that and in what ways have they not kept those promises? Um, so the Labour Party uh, has, um, you know, uh, they have promised, um, uh, uh, you know, people have been, uh, during the election, a lot of refugees have been, they had a hope and they've been in the polling booth and you know canvassing for refugee uh, labor party because they believe that you know after 10 years if labor party comes to a, a position they are they believe that they are going to have some kind of solution so a lot of refugees were uh, you know they had a hope and the day of this announcement that they are only going to give well, few people a permanent residency that actually broke a lot of people plus and the family life and a lot of people have actually gone, um, you know, uh, tried to commit suicide. And there's a lot of people there uh, couldn't go to job for a couple of days because they they sincerely believe that, you know, there's going to be a solution for everyone. But they never believe that uh, their Labour Party is going to leave off these 12,000 people. Um, so these 12,000 people, they are, uh, they are heartbroken. They don't know like they, they only hope was Labour Party, but now they they have let even the Labour Party wash their hands. So they don't really know. They, they don't uh, know what what else to do. So that's why they are most of people are now taking the reduction. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that you're protesting is this fast track system, which is flawed. Can you tell us about this? That's. Definitely, this fast track system has been an unfair uh, system uh, for all the refugees. They want, they, uh, most of these refugees are non-English speaking. Even after living in this country for more than uh, you know ten years, um, with the you know they they don't have uh, proper access to any kind of education or you know uh, any kind of uh, uh, you know society stuff. So they 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 couldn't improve. They couldn't improve their. Uh, you know the language skills or anything. So still now they are not able to understand a lot of this uh, government jargons and stuff. With this, for you know, the fast track system, they actually try to get their old taste in in few minutes. So it, it, that actually you know flawed. Like they didn't understand what the system is, what mm. they are trying to ask, what they wanted to give in the case. So they have given whatever they know, uh, but most most of them had very limited English. They couldn't clearly say what the problem is why they are here that actually the government tried to use that against these people and now they are you know victimized for the system yeah it doesn't it seems so unfair that the government doesn't provide the correct resources for anybody to be able to you know gain the skills that are needed in order to complete these processes it seems like uh they're set up to fail in a way that's that's very true um yeah, so there's more people are ready to you know do anything. They are improving their uh, you know lifestyle. They 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 wanted to learn a lot. They wanted to mingle with the community, but uh, the lack of support is making them uh, going down more and more than uh, you know improving themselves. Yeah, absolutely. What does it feel like to be in the march right now and have solidarity with so many other women um, who are in such a similar situation? It, it is. It, it is really heartbreaking because um, 
Radhi, who was speaking uh, just now, she actually uh, you know, uh, injured her leg, so she couldn't walk. She's like uh, having a toothpick, uh, so that's why she couldn't properly talk in the air right now. And there are other women here working. They are single mom, left the kids at home. And um, there are other people, you know, they are really, really, you know, uh, injured and had, you know, a couple of operations, C-section. And these people have, uh, a lot of people have, low, you know, big back. But they're still walking. Uh, they, you know, they're trying their best to walk 30 kilometers per day. That's incredible. Really, really hard work. Uh, I don't know what keeps them, you know, going. But it's really, uh, you know, their pain. This, uh, this pain is not, uh, you know, uh, something that uh, equal to the pain they have been going through for more than 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. They sound just so incredibly resilient and. Um, the march sounds like, you know, it's really powerful um, and heartbreaking at the same time. Uh, I feel like, you know, these women shouldn't have to be so resilient. The government should be providing far more support. But this is the situation as it stands. Um, what are your demands from this march? This, from this march, we are seeking um, permanent residency for all the left out. Uh, nine, it's uh, around uh, nine... 10,000 people, so we want um, permanent residency for all these 10,000 people. It's not just for us. Uh, any, every, everyone in this country, every refugee should be given permanent residency, and this limbo should stop. Absolutely. And how can people listening right now help support this movement? Um, so um, we have our Facebook page. Um, it's called... Uh, uh, Refugee Women Action for Visa Equality. And um, so they can follow the uh, Facebook page. And uh, so we, if they are on this road, they can stop by and say hello to us. That would be encouraging as well. And, um, you know, if they have some connections in this area, they can also put us in connection because we've been um, uh, having trouble in finding, you know, places to stay overnight. Absolutely. Can you tell our listeners the route that you're taking so that they're aware of where they can see you if they're around? Yeah, so today we are walking from Nehembi to Acadia South and tomorrow from Acadia to Shepparton. And, uh, and we will be in Shepparton uh, on Thursday and, uh, and uh, we will do a protest day. And if you are in Shepparton, um, you can come and join us for the, in the protest. Great. What time is that protest? Uh, we will be sending all the details in our Facebook page uh, very soon. Okay, amazing. We will link to that Facebook page in our show notes today. Lavinia, that's all we have time for today, but really appreciate you taking the time during the march to speak to us. I think it's really powerful to hear from women who are there doing the action as we speak. And um, we would love to have you back on the show to update us on how this is all going. And we wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Thank you so much. So that was Rati and then Lavinia from uh, Refugee Women Action for Visa Equality who are marching um, a very long distance to Parliament House in Canberra to fight for the rights of refugees, particularly women and children who have been disadvantaged by the flawed fast-track visa system. Uh, we'll link to their Facebook later today for listeners who did want to support their uh, march and their protest. We'll be right back with a roundup of our show after this. We have a right to be in public space. 
undertaking political activity. That is not something that people should be telling us that we can't do. Multiple actions rolling over months and years and create huge sustained pressure of social change. And what we're seeing around the country right now is increasing repression of protest. Protest works. That's why I think we're seeing it criminalised all over the place. 3CR. Stay tuned, stay radical. You're on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. We have come to the end of our show for this morning. Here's a quick roundup of what we had on the show. We started with a conversation that I had with Dr. Ellen Cho from Monash University about a report that looks into the experiences of women from migrant and refugee backgrounds uh, working in local councils. After that, we spoke with Chloe, who will be speaking at a public forum tonight on the ALP policies. It's called Albanese's Labor Sacrificing Principles for Power. Um, And yeah, it's happening from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. tonight at the Resistance Centre. After that, we spoke with Ayala Morales and Megan O'Connor from Wire and Court Network, respectively. Uh, They spoke about an upcoming event where women, non-binary and gender diverse people can access more information and support um, when it comes to navigating the legal system. So a reminder, this event is happening on the 12th of October. We then were joined in the studio by Professor Kim Cornish, who was talking to us about her book, The Post-Pandemic Child, uh, which looks at the impacts uh, that the pandemic had on school-aged children and rising mental health issues and the disadvantages that weren't necessarily felt by all. And we just ended the show then with uh, a conversation from with um, Rati and Lavinia from Refugee Women Action for Visa Equality. They joined us live from their march to parliament in Canberra which they um, they're walking for a number of days to protest the mistreatment of women and children refugees um, particularly those who applied via the fast track visa system um, and just fighting for refugee rights to justice protection study and work that was our show this morning stay tuned to breakfast for the rest of the week at 7 a.m and as always accent of women is coming up next 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.